Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, we are already entering into the fourth week of our series, which is the Sabbath and the Mark of God. And today we are going to be digging into a little bit further into early church history and really to discover, to find out what in the world happened. I mean, why has modern-day Christianity abandoned the very thing she was commanded to keep, to protect, to guard? And here's the thing. We look at Scripture. We see what the prophets had to say about Christians who would be getting grafted, becoming and being grafted into Israel, right? And we see what the prophets said. They said, grab onto these things where the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, We're not to reject these things, and we're not to separate ourselves from the Jewish people. And then you move on into the New Testament, and what do you see? You see that as evidence. You see the very thing that was prophesied of what was supposed to happen, the very prayer that Yeshua prays, that the Jew and Gentile would become one new man in him. We see evidence of that. We have Gentiles in the synagogues with the Jews on the Shabbat. And the expectation is Acts 15, that they would go and they would learn, they would hear every Shabbat, the Torah, the law of Moses. They would hear these things. These are, this is the expectation. What has happened? Because it's unrecognizable of what we're looking at today and what I read about in here in the word of God. So we're going to be digging into some more church history in an attempt to understand uh, what in the world's going on. Now, if you remember in the last message, part three, I pulled up two primary sources uh, in history. And the first one is the Epistle of Methodes to Diognetus. And we looked at that, and we looked at the Epistle of Barnabas. Both of those epistles hail from the early second century. And what time is that? Well, that's the infancy stage. The church, if you will call it that, the church is in its infancy stage. She is just a child. There are many parts of the world that have no idea. They've never heard the name Yeshua. They have no idea he rose from the dead and that he died for their sins. I mean, we are just in this infant stage. Today, I want to take you back to roughly this time, same time period. And I want to introduce you to some more men, some more letters early church fathers. The first one I want to introduce you to today, his name is Ignatius of Antioch. Now, here's what I want to point out. The first thing I want to point out is this is not Antioch of Pisidia, okay? So as you get closer into that area of Galatia, right, in Asia or whatever, uh, this is Antioch of Syria. Why does this matter? Because Antioch of Syria was a power hub for the faith. It was literally the primary source. Second to Yerushalayim, it was the primary source. You had prophets, you had teachers residing in this. You want to talk about the presence. There was an awesome presence of the faith in Antioch of Syria. You had uh, prophets and teachers going out from there. From Jerusalem, prophets were coming to Antioch. It was going down in Antioch. It was happening. It was mighty presence of the faith. And this is exactly where Ignatius was. This is where he's from. He's from Antioch of Syria. So he's being brought up in this amazing environment. And keep in mind, look at the dates. He lived when? During the apostolic era, right? 
Let me take it a step further. They say he was literally discipled, literally a student of the Apostle John. And so just to put this gentleman into context, I want you to think about for a moment having this bio, having this resume, being in Antioch, literally being a student of the apostles themselves. What does that do to you? If you were writing, what is that going to do to your writings? It's going to elevate them to the highest of heights. Every word people are going to hang on when you speak. Why? Because you're going to teach what the apostles directly taught you. You have something to say, and people in the faith, they want to hear it. Very, very powerful platform. Can we agree on that? Well, I want to show you what Ignatius had to say about the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And I think it's pretty important for you to be familiar with uh, some of what he has to say, because when the topic arises of why Christians don't observe the Sabbath or even going further and saying why they shouldn't observe the Sabbath, understand this, Ignatius most likely is going to be brought to the table. If you are engaging in a conversation with a learned student of the word, with a biblical scholar, who knows his stuff, who's familiar with early uh, church history, I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear about Ignatius. And actually, and I'm not going to do it today, but in the coming weeks, I'm actually going to give you some examples of modern-day scholars and how they reconcile abandoning the Sabbath and how they look at this. And we'll look at this, and and one of the things you're going to see is you're going to see they're, they're pulling from the early church history. And one of them is Ignatius. He's pretty famous for doing this. He's been a great resource. Now, before I show you what Ignatius has to say in the context by which he's going to say it, I want to give you a little backdrop, as it were, to these letters because you need to understand there is a little bit of controversy involved here. Uh, There are some who suggest that his letters are actual forgeries. And let me be clear on this. What do I mean by that? Well, some would suggest that Ignatius was not the true author of these letters that bear his name, but someone came later on, even as late as the third century, and they simply utilized his name. They wrote these letters, plopped Ignatius's name on them. Now, what would be the benefit of doing that? Well, everything. Because remember, he was taught literally by the apostles himself, so it makes perfect sense why someone would do that. Now, to help you understand the backdrop here and uh, this controversial nature of the situation, but even more so, the most important point here is just how relied upon and how influential these letters are, I want to give you some commentary uh, by a church historian. He was from the 1800s. His name is William Killen. And ironically enough, he was also a Presbyterian minister, very articulate uh, individual, uh, I want to show you what he has to say in commenting on these letters and pay very close attention. The epistles attributed to Ignatius have attracted greater notice and have created more discussion than any other uninspired writings of the same extent in existence. You feel the weight of that statement? You feel the weight of what he just said? In other words, he's saying extra canonically outside of the canon of Scripture, These letters are it. People have poured over these. Scholars have poured over these century after century. 
investing their time in these letters to glean the littlest nugget of truth, if you will. They're just, they're, they're investigating these things. I mean, this is, this is pretty monumental stuff. And when you consider the time when Ignatius is said to have lived, does that or does that not make sense? Do you or do you not want to see how the church functioned right off the bat in its infancy stage? Of course you want to see these things. Now listen to what he says. He goes on and says this. It continues. The productions ascribed to this author and now reputed genuine by the most learned of the recent editors might all be printed on one-fourth of a page of ordinary newspaper. And yet the fatigue of traveling thousands of miles has been encountered for the special purpose of searching after correct copies of these highly prized memorials continuing on. Large volumes have been written either to establish their authority or to prove that they are forgeries. And if collected together, the books in various languages to which they have given birth would themselves form a considerable library. Oh my, you want to talk about attracting attention. The letters of Ignatius have done it. They've attracted the attention of Christians century after century going all the way back to his timetable. And they're pouring over these things. Suffice it to say, the letters of Ignatius, and this is the small point I'm making, they are extremely significant in Christendom today. They are extremely influential. And as we continue, uh, you are going to see that. One thing I do want to mention before we get into this, I don't want you to get hung up on the conspiracy and the controversy of whether Ignatius himself wrote these letters or whether they were forgeries and someone simply used his name. And here's why I don't want you to get caught up. What does it matter? It's irrelevant. One thing I can tell you is they were written, they were distributed, they were read, they are studied, and they are taught. It's irrelevant if if Ignatius wrote them or not. They're a massive influence on Christendom today. And this is the sole point is as we go there, and, and knowing the influence that they've had on Christianity, uh, we're just going to look at them for what they are. What do they have to say? If these documents are influencing Christendom today, we should know what they say. Amen? Well, let's go there, and I'm just going to show you a small part. He has many letters, um, just so you know. We're just going to look at uh, one of them today, um, and specifically uh, the, his epistle to the Magnesians. To the Magnesians. Now listen to what he says. If therefore those who were brought up in the ancient order of things have come to the possession of a new hope, obviously meaning Yeshua, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in the observance of the Lord's day, on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. Think about how early we are. Even if we were to believe that these are forgeries at a later date, we're still predating Constantine by quite a while. I mean, could be over 150 years, 100 years, okay? So I just want to point this out. Here in the infancy stage of the gospel, Ignatius is telling me they're abandoned. They don't keep the Sabbath anymore. They've traded it. They now observe what is called the Lord's Day. And this is a synonym for Sunday. And we will be getting more into that in the coming weeks. I don't want to do that now, but we're going to continue on. Listen to what he says. 
Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner. Did you get that? No longer keeping the Sabbath after the Jewish manner. Do you remember the analogy that I gave you of what was happening in the late first century into the second century of this volcanic explosion, this eruption where lava is spewing out every direction, flowing everywhere to the lands and coming down and that lava is heresy? You remember what I said? What was the force? Because the lava does the damage, but what caused it to erupt? What was the driving force? And what I'm telling you is the common denominator of all these heresies of going astray from the word of God, it will boil it down every single time to the separation of the Jew from the Gentile. Every time. Go to the root. Identify it. And here again, I'm showing you this is true. It's absolutely true. Yeshua told us we were to be one. This was what was prophesied. The Gentiles were to be united, echad, with the Jewish people. But now we start to see already in the infancy stage of Christianity, there's a ripping away. And what is going on at this time? Remember, you have Gnosticism, you have Marcionism. What did Marcionism do? It did exactly what Ignatius is doing here separating the Jew from the Gentile. There is one more thing I want to point out here, especially for the Messianic brothers and sisters uh, who are just more under, know more, they're more learned in regard to Judaism today and the reality. I want to point this out. It says, no longer keeping the Sabbath after the Jewish manner. He is not referring to rabbinical laws. Okay, let me be clear on something. Judaism today goes beyond the Torah and the prophets. They have the Talmud. They have the Mishnah. Okay, they have the oral code. It's called the oral Torah, where it's man-made commandments have been added onto it. There's, of course, certainly they would dispute the fact that uh, they're man-made. They believe they got them directly from Moses. But Yeshua disputed this in the New Testament. We're not going to go down that road today. My point of what I want to make clear here is, Ignatius, this is very important, is not dealing with rabbinical laws. In other words, like on the Sabbath, there are particular laws, and we're going to get into those later on as well, particular laws where you can't even tear a piece of toilet paper. You can't find that in the Torah, but this is in rabbinical laws. And so you look at this, and I want to be clear that If you think Ignatius is referring to that, he is not. He has gone after the commandment itself, what we find in the Decalogue, what we find in Exodus 20, what we find in Deuteronomy 5. This is explicitly about the commandment. Very, very important. And this is going to be proven as we continue. So do not think that this is about rabbinical takanot. Now, he goes on and says, And rejoice in the days of idleness, for he that does not work, let him not eat. Here we go again. And you're going to see this consistently. Ignatius is using scripture. He's explicitly using a passage from the apostle Paul. And basically the message that he is conveying right here is don't you dare rest on the Sabbath. That is a day you are supposed to be working on. How dare you rest? If you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. Well, I want to highlight this for you because this is how he substantiates his claim 
for walking away from the Shabbat. And this is scriptural. Now, there's one thing I want to add here, just as a preface. If you get fired up and you're like, oh, I'm excited. I want to go and start studying the early church fathers. May I preface this one thing before you do that? If you are not extremely familiar with the word of God, where you have invested a lot of time, you can go and read the early church fathers, but I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to get a whole lot out of it. And here's why. They don't stop like I try to often. And when I quote a scripture, when I quote something from the Bible, I give a reference point. Like Jeremiah 1.5, whatever it is, Isaiah 1.3, whatever. I typically, they don't do that. And that's not a bad thing. It's not right or wrong. But the thing about it is, is they are saying so many things. They are drawing from the word. And if you don't know what the word says, you have no idea what they're doing. And so I just point this out. And so reading this, now this one's a little bit easier because it's directly out of the New Testament and it's pretty overt. Had most of you read this, you would have, with Bob would have went off and said, oh, I've heard that before. That was the Apostle Paul. And him who does not work, let him not eat. We've all heard that. Well, this, you see, this is important. This is scripture. He's using scripture to prove the point of walking away from the Shabbat. Well, here's what I want to do. I want to take you to where Paul says this. The interesting thing of it is, you'll notice that he doesn't say anything about the Sabbath. And so the trajectory of where Ignatius is going with this verse, with this statement, couldn't be farther apart from where the Apostle Paul goes. And I want to show this to you. And this is so important that we put Scripture up against Scripture. When people start saying, thus says the Lord, okay, Start going to the word where we check all things. Amen? Be, be students. Second Thessalonians 3.10. This is what Paul says. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. This is exactly what Ignatius quotes. So Ignatius is quoting the apostle Paul. But then it goes on to say, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, Not working at all. He doesn't say, and keeping Shabbat. Notice he doesn't come and say, you're so disorderly, you're keeping Shabbat. You need to go to work. The problem is, is they're not working at all. They're lazy sacks of unkosher potatoes. This is what they are. He's dealing with, with busybodies. And it was a problem. I challenge you, read the epistles of Paul This isn't the only time he deals with this. This was a real problem. You start spanning his epistles. He's talking about it all the time. In Ephesians, he says in Ephesians 4, let him who stole steal no longer, but let him work with his hands that he might give to him who has need. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, if anyone will not provide for his own, even for those of his own household, he is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. I mean, this was a real significant problem. But I'm telling you, this has nothing to do with the Sabbath. Nothing whatsoever. It's amazing how you can people can extrapolate or commit eisegesis, interpolation, and they read into a text, so this is what it means. I mean, there's a vast amount of perversion going on here. And I wish it were not so. Because Ignatius, I can tell you right now, he had a lot of wonderful things to say that were biblically accurate that he did wield correctly. Something else I want to point out. Let's go back. 
Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner and rejoice in the days of idleness. This really blows my mind. He's condemning people who rest on the Shabbat and take joy in the Shabbat. He's actually rebuking them for doing that. Well, here's the interesting fact. I'll take it to Nehemiah 8, and I didn't put it up on the screen, but mentally let's go to Nehemiah 8. And what we find in Nehemiah 8 in verse, right off the, right off the bat, we find that all the people gathered together as one man. Okay? And it's interesting because it's on a Sabbath. The day they gather together is on the Sabbath. It is the first day of the seventh month. Okay, what we call Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah. Ezra begins to read the Torah. And the people start weeping. Tears coming down their eyes. Why? Well, the answer to that is very easy. Because Torah was doing what it does best. It convicts. It exposes you for what you really are. It exposes all the filthy sins that you have embraced in your life and mine, where I have been brought to my knees when I, when I see the things that Torah says and I know the Lord is speaking directly to me and it causes you to mourn and weep because you have betrayed your God. And this is what's happening. And so they start reaping. But here's what's interesting about the whole deal. Ezra, Nehemiah, they go out and they tell the people, stop it. Stop mourning. Stop weeping. Stop sorrowing. Why? The day is holy unto the Lord. They knew it was the Sabbath. This day does not call for mourning. It calls for rejoicing and rest. That's what it calls. This is what God has commanded. This is what he desires. We are to rejoice on this day. It's absolutely amazing. And then you got that beautiful statement that most of us are familiar with. They ended out with, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so their, their tears turned to joy. Their, their, their sorrow turned to laughter. It's a, it's, a, it's a powerful story. But here's the scariest part of what Ignatius has said. I have heard what he has said before. I've heard it in the context that he has spoken it. And do you know where I've heard it? In the Torah. The very same context. This is, this is going to frighten you. I want to take you to the Torah. I want to show you how powerful the word of God is. And when we start putting up people's statements to the word, and when they are not correct, when they are abusing the word of God, they will collapse like a house of cards. Very powerful. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people Go, shalach et ami, that they may hold, what? A feast. Do you know that this first introduction, the Lord shares with Pharaoh. He tells him why he wants his people to leave. He wants them to keep a feast in the Hebrew Chag. And look it up. Every time you will find this is explicitly used of the festivals of the Shabbats. Every time, look it up. It's amazing that when you see every time we read about this feast, and let me just build upon that. When did the children of Israel actually leave? The feast, it was Pesach, right? Literally on the Shabbat. 
This is the Lord. He has called out to Pharaoh. I want my people to keep the Shabbat. I want them to keep this festival to me. And Pharaoh fights him. And we go on. Let them hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And, And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor where I'll let Israel go. Verse 3. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. You get what was just said? I mean, he, he warns of Moses and Aaron said, listen, we don't heed the voice of the living God. If we don't go and keep this festival, if we don't keep this Shabbat, we're dead. We are dead men. The pestilence and the sword will come upon us. Their fate will be just as that as the Egyptians. Think about what's being said here. And listen to how Pharaoh responds. He goes to war. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, listen to this. Why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. You just see what he said? No, no, no. You're not going to the feast. You're not going to Shabbat. What you're going to do is you're going to go back to work. You need to get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. And listen to this as we go jumping down to verse 17. But Pharaoh said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go. Does that sound familiar? Let me put the epistle of Magnesians back up here. Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner and rejoice in the days of idleness. The very thing that Pharaoh spoke from his mouth, he did not want the children of Israel to rest. He did not want them to keep that festival, the Shabbat. He cried out, get back to your labors, is the exact same thing that Ignatius is crying out. He is crying out to the Christians, get back to your labors. You are not to rest on this day. You are to work. Do not rejoice in idleness. Idleness, idleness. If I didn't know better, I would know this is Pharaoh, resurrected who, by the way, is the very image of Hasatan. He's the very typology of Hasatan. And yet, this is the evidence that the learned will bring to the table to prove to you what we're doing, what the Christian church is doing today, is perfectly right, because they did it back in the infancy stage, in the infancy of the gospel as it's going out. Just look at it. We're right on track. The more you dig into history, I'm telling you, the crazier things get. You, you, you come across statements like what we just read here, and it's hard for you to get your mind wrapped around it. When you have people starting talking like Pharaoh, to start to come against what God has commanded us to keep. Let me introduce you to another early church father, Justin Martyr. Of course, Justin uh, is from that crazy period of explosion that second century period where all sorts of heresies are flying everywhere he was actually born in samaria uh, ended up moving to rome after his conversion to christianity something i want you to know about justin is he was a highly highly educated man of course studying greek philosophy considered to be one of the first true intellectual converts to christianity 
Well, as you might expect with his background of his intellect, a man of his intellect, Justin arose to be one of the most significant apologists really in Christianity's history. And especially in his day, he rose up to be a powerful apologist. And let's be honest, living in the era that he lived in, they needed it. They needed someone to step up to defend the faith of Yeshua. And in, in, in many respects, you, you read what Justin did and how he handled specific individuals, whether it's Gnosticism uh, or just paganism, unbelievers in, in general, and you see how he handles it. And you read his works, his apologies, his, whether it's first or second, and he says a lot of amazing things, and they're right on. And so I just preface that. Well, one of his apologetic works is known as his dialogue with Trifo. Trifo, for those of you who are not aware, Trifo was a Jewish scholar, but he was not a believer in Yeshua. So kind of like modern day terms, which you'll be able to appreciate, Trifo was what we would call today an Orthodox Jew, okay? And here you have on the other side, you have Justin, who is a Gentile convert to Christianity, which what does this do? Well, this makes this work really, really interesting to read, right? Where you have Christianity going up against Orthodox Judaism, and they're going back and forth. It's this volley of theological differences and trying to prove their point with each other. I'll say this real quick. There's a little bit of controversy in regard to the letter, only in the sense of, was Trifo real? See, because Trifo did not write his portion in Justin's work. He didn't just say, okay, Justin, you said that, hang on. I'm going to write what I'm going to respond, and I'll be written down here. No, it's just all Justin. He's simply recording what is allegedly told to him. Um, So this adds a little bit of controversy, whether Trifo was completely fictitious, or if he was real, well, how much of the dialogue did Justin really retain? I mean, you can have all these questions, but again, it's all irrelevant. Don't get caught up in in, in the smoke of things or whatever. Uh, It's irrelevant. We have this work. The work is read and studied by Christian scholars today. It's utilized today, yet once again, to show that why Christianity does not keep the Sabbath. And so let's take a look at this work for what it is, and let's see what Justin had to say. And this portion that I'm going to show you is actually Justin speaking to Trifo and his contemporaries, and this is what we read. Is there any matter, my friends, in which we are blamed than this? That we live not after the law. The first thing I want to show you is that he comes to the table in boasting. He's proud of this, that they have abandoned the Torah. They've abandoned the law of God. Now, you look at this, you look at modern-day Christianity today, they've abandoned the law of God, right? And so they're just following suit. This is consistent with a lot of what we're seeing in the infancy stage of modern-day Christianity. We live not after the law and are not circumcised in the flesh as your forefathers were and do not observe the Sabbath as you do. Now, here's yet another example of an early church father. We've looked at Matthias. We look at the epistle of Barnabas. We look at Ignatius. Now we're looking at Justin Martyr. Okay, this is not just one testimony. This is not an anomaly. This is a serious issue that has spread. It is everywhere And they're specifically coming out and boasting of abandoning the law and abandoning the Shabbats. 
And you think about what's being said here in condensed this, and this could be preached from any pulpit today. It is. Most of the pulpits all over all talk about, well, we don't do the Sabbath anymore. It's not for us. Well, that's Jewish. We've abandoned it. And then they might quote a specific scripture, whether it's from Methodius, whether it's from Ignatius, whether it's from the Epistle of Barnabas, whatever it is, that type of viewpoint, or maybe even Justin Martyrs. Well, as we continue here, Justin's going to explain why Christians no longer embrace these things. And this is very powerful because I always want to know the reason. And I know you do too. Okay, so if you're going to say, we don't do the Sabbath, we don't embrace the law, the next question is, why? Why don't you do these? Where do you stand on this? How do, how do you arrive at this place? So this is very precious literature for us to understand and to help us understand Christian scholars better, which ultimately, you know, gets into the professors and it finally gets into the seminaries and then it begins to spread. You got to understand how this stuff works. It's very organized, right? And not that that's a bad thing, having organizes. It's the way we should be. The faith should be organized. Well, listen to his, what he, his answer to this of why they're doing these things. For we too would observe the fleshly circumcision and the Sabbath, and in short, all the feasts, meaning Passover to Sukkot, if we did not know for what reason they were enjoined you, namely on account of your transgressions and the hardness of your hearts. In other words, the only reason the Lord imposed these things upon the Jewish people, upon the Hebrew people, the law, the Sabbath, the circumcision, the feast, it was because they were so sinful, just vile people. God basically decided to impose this uh, horrible punishment upon them. They were deserving of a curse because of the behavior. But this makes you, you know, you read commentary like this, and it makes you think, well, wait a second. Are you, what are you saying? Are you saying the Hebrew people were the only sinful people on planet Earth? Were there no wonderfully sinful people in paganism to dole out the, the law, to dole out the Sabbath and the circumcisions to? It was only the Hebrew people? I mean, this is what's being implied. This is what people come away with. This is how they understand it. Well, prompts me to ask another question. Why? Why were these things given to the Jewish people? I think it's fair. I don't have a problem with asking the question. I have a problem with the assessment. But asking the question, why were these things given to the Jewish? Why was the Torah given to the Jewish people? Was it because they were filthy sinners? Let's go and see what Scripture has to say. And fortunately for us, it literally deals with this exact question. Absolutely beautiful. Going to the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, here's the question. What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? It's the million-dollar question. It's the very thing that Justin is dealing with. Right? And it's interesting that the Torah, that the Lord premeditated. He knew that this, this, this specific question needed to be answered and we need to be prepared for it. We need to be prepared to share what is the reason. Well, let's continue on in the Torah and find out what that is. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. Moving on verse 23. 
Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. Now listen. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God because you're filthy sinners. It's not what it says. I mean, he's telling them that God has commanded you. He's laid upon the Torah upon you. Why? For your good. For our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. This is why the Torah was given to the children of Israel. I mean, talk about being off. I mean, I can go down every single one that he mentions, that Justin mentions, and saying that this is a product of your sins and literally obliterated just going to the word of God. We know why the law was given to them. What about Sabbath? Did we or did we not cover this? Well, Exodus chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, verse 20. I gave them my Sabbath that they might be a sign between me and them that they might know that I'm the Lord. That makes them holy. That sanctifies them. That's why he gave them the Sabbath. Why did he give them circumcision? This is what's really amazing. How does Paul address circumcision in Romans chapter 4? He calls it the seal of the righteousness of the faith. It's the trophy of Abraham's faith. And when did Abraham receive circumcision? When God entered into covenant with him, he changed his name and called him Abraham because he would be the father of many nations. You could not put circumcision on a higher pedestal. It represents the faith, and not only that, biblical prophecy, the Gentiles would be grafted into Israel. they become Abraham's children. That's why Abraham was given circumcision. You go down every single thing he listed there. You want, at times you ask, what planet do I live on? What are we talking about? Where do you get this stuff? You think about Proverbs chapter 3. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of me. Happy are all who hold her fast. Right? She's a tree of life. What does Psalm 1950 say? Your word has given me life. Satan has come in. I mean, we've got to understand this. Satan has come in and he's completely flipped everything upside down. Everything upside down. Now, I'm going to jump on the other side to be fair to Justin Martyr. I know what he's doing. Or at least I know what he's attempting to do. I understand very well he has taken passages or concepts out of Scripture in an attempt to prove his position. But yet, once again, we need to look at what he is quoting and the context by which it was utilized, right? Let me take you back to what he said. For we too observe the fleshly, we, we too would observe the fleshly circumcision and the Sabbath and in short all the feasts if we did not know for what reason they were enjoined to you, namely on account of your transgressions. See, this is getting back to my point that if you don't know your scripture very well, you're going to miss so much. Because right here, ding, 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 I know he's drawing from Scripture. I know exactly where he's drawing from. He, once again, is drawing from the Apostle Paul. And let me take you to where he is drawing from. Let's put this together. In Galatians 3.19, Paul says to the Galatians, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Well, what did, what did he just say? He said, namely, on account of transgressions, this is why you got the law. This is why you got the Sabbath. This is why you got circumcision. Well, we get to the writings of Paul, and Paul says, what, what's the point of the law? It was added because of transgressions. 
Here's the problem. Where Justin takes it to bring it to fruition, to bring the concept to fruition, where he went with it, again, light years away from where Paul is going with this statement. Paul brings clarity to what he means by this statement. And so we're going to put this in context. Let's look at what Paul, what do you mean, Paul? It was added because of transgressions. He goes on, he says, till the seed, meaning Yeshua, should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Going to verse 23, and we read this. But before faith came, we were kept, what? Under guard by the law. I want to stop right here. Notice we weren't cursed by the law. It would, though our own failure can bring about a curse. No, he said we were kept under guard by the law. This is called the law of the pedagogue. This is called the law of the pahidagogos, okay? Meaning the guardian. A guardian who is responsible for the care of a child, to rear that child, to embrace that child, to discipline that child. This was the function of the law. But not just that. We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, now here's what he means. The law was our tutor to bring us to Mashiach. Think about that. So not only is the law a pedagogue, not only is he the guardian to protect them. That's what a guardian does, protects. But now we find out that the law actually points to one. The law is pointing. Everyone who embraced the law, it points to Yeshua the Messiah. You think about Romans 10. For all the, the goal for the Messiah is the goal of the law. He is the telos. The whole point of the Torah is to point to him when it's embraced, when it's embraced correctly, the humble heart, that we might be justified by faith. So my point is, is I understand what Justin's doing. And it's very crafty. And if you thought, I believe that this was just fleshly in nature and what he is doing, you would not understand where I'm coming from because this is absolutely, this is darker, this is deeper deception, this is spiritual. And we're dealing with doctrines of demons here. I mean, I know when I come up against the demonic host, I know what's going on, I see it. And it's scary stuff. And so he utilizes this statement, but it went completely different direction than where Paul went. And all you got to do is read these things. And the tragedy of the situation, it's not an anomaly. I mean, you look at this, like I, said, like I just got done saying, you got Methades, you got, you got Barnabas, you got Ignatius, you got Justin Martyr, and this, we're just getting started. This is not an anomaly. This is a problem. Unfortunately, the things that we're reading about Shabbat, they're, they're more and more common in early, the infancy stage of early church history and only start to manifest on a greater level as we continue until we get to where we're at right now. Justin Martyr, he goes on to say, For if we patiently endure all things contrived against us by wicked men and demons so that even amid cruelties, unutterable death and torments, we pray for mercy to those who inflict such things upon us. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about the Sabbath. He's talking about the Torah. He's talking about the feasts. And the terminology Justin uses, and this is brilliant, is it's just, it's wretched. It's an infliction. In other words, it is an affliction. 
And you talk to people, and I even grew up in the church, okay? I grew up in the assemblies of God, and when I heard the law, my initial reaction, that's a curse, that's an affliction, that's bondage, I'm out of here. I don't want to hear anything it has to say. Because this is the stuff that is implemented. Without even knowing. People not even knowing the truth. It's, it's done in ignorance. But this is the manifestation of it. And you see this type of terminology and you pay close attention. It's frightening. It's frightening when people talk like this. And he finishes it off. And do not wish to give the least retort to anyone, even as the new lawgiver commanded us. That's funny because sometimes you want to get in a conversation about the Torah. He's like, I'm done. Bad enough. I don't want to hear it. I mean, I, there's literally guys that have walked down, I kid you not, have put their fingers in their ears and said, I don't want to hear it. That it, stuff happens. We're going to close here for today. Um, and we're going to be continuing in church history. And, uh, you know, I just got to tell you, for me, this stuff hurts. This hurts because I want to go back to the early church fathers and I want to praise them. I want to praise them for standing up. I want to praise them for, for taking persecution, for taking the time to defend the faith. And certainly there's a lot of good things that are said, but the undertow, the undercurrent of what is going on and what you see Christendom being built on a house of cards, that's scary. I mean, that rips my heart out. It is really hard to see this stuff. And it's hard for me to believe as I peer out and look at hundreds of thousands and millions over the generations that have come in and began to boast in walking away from the Sabbath. God, have mercy upon us. God, have mercy upon us. Unfortunately, he is a gracious and merciful God. Long before I ever started keeping Shabbat, his grace fell upon me. And that is truth. So everyone rise. We are going to do our battle cry. Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, it is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And we all read, today we will go to war. We will not fear. We will not faint. And we will not give in to the flesh. And we will not give in to our enemies. Today we will stand and we will fight We will conquer through the might of our Lord Yeshua. And let us pray the prayer the Lord taught us. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.